Hello and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. God has not changed his address. God was not part of the urban flight or the rural revitalization program. God still lives where God has always lived, in your heart. God is still doing what God has always done, loving you. God is still who God has always been, the source and the supply of all that you need and desire. God is still doing things in the only way that God has ever done anything, in the only way God can do anything, eternally. Some of us don't think God is still around because we haven't visited God in such a long time. With all the changes and the challenges, the ups and downs, additions and subtractions in our lives, our faith in God may have faded some of us may even have concluded that God has gone away and that there is absolutely no way to find God in the midst of all the pain, confusion, discontent, disharmony, and discord in our own lives. Nothing could be farther from the truth. God is still in the same place, in the midst of your need, being the same way, merciful and forgiving, for the same reason, love, under the same circumstances, waiting for you to acknowledge and accept how much you depend on God. In the Archbishop's Corner is where Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair reminds us that God is still here and we still depend on God for all of life. It's a good reminder, one that we all need from time to time. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner, where your input will provide us with important keys to creating a more productive and positive relationship with God and His people. How are you today? Fine, thank you. Well, today is the third Sunday of Advent already. It's also known as Gaudete Sunday. During the season of Advent, we shift our focus. For the first two weeks of Advent, the focus can be summed up in the phrase, the Lord is coming. But beginning with Gaudete Sunday, the summary might be, the Lord is near. And this shift is marked by a lighter mood and a heightened sense of joyous anticipation. Can you talk for a moment about how this celebration is a reminder that we await his coming, not with fear, but with tremendous joy? Well, yes, uh, the Lord is near uh, in the sense of the historical celebration of Christmas, that Christmas is near. But it's also that he's near because each one of us is one day closer to leaving this world and appearing before the judgment seat of Christ. And for a person of faith, that's not a frightening thing. That's a joyful thing. And we're one day closer to the consummation of all things when this world will come to an end and Christ will uh, and God will be all in all. So, you know, things don't stay uh, static. They're always in movement. And um, Advent uh, reminds us of all those different comings that are part of life. Tomorrow, we celebrate the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe. The day is especially important for Americans of Mexican heritage, as it honors the belief that Jesus' mother, Mary, appeared twice in 1531 to a man named Juan Diego in Mexico City. Our Lady of Guadalupe is the patroness of the Americas, including Mexico. The Latino Catholic population is growing. What is the relationship, Archbishop, between faith and culture? 
Well, well, that's a huge uh, question. I mean, we even have, as part of our diocesan offices, an office of uh, faith and culture. And uh, that is extremely important because faith is always lived and expressed in, in a culture. And in the United States today, we have a diversity of cultures. We, we always have. Obviously, we have our American uh, culture that, that we're part of. But we also, uh, that is enriched by different ethnicities and cultures and races. And so uh, our Office for Faith and Culture does a, a wonderful job in bringing people together uh, for different things, whether it's a, a, a choir concert uh, or whether it's a, a meal or commemoration. Uh, next year, there's a Congress in Washington uh, for black Catholics in the United States that I'll be attending. And that uh, is uh, also uh, involves our archdiocese representation through our office. But to get back to Our Lady of Guadalupe, she is the patroness of all the Americas, including our own. Now, we obviously have had the Immaculate Conception of Mary be our national patroness, but uh, that also extends to Our Lady under the title of Our Lady of Guadalupe. It's really it's a tremendous message, what happened uh, so long ago, and uh, it continues to be a very powerful spiritual uh, presence uh, in, in our hemisphere. I've been privileged to go to the Shrine of Our Lady of Guadalupe outside Mexico City twice now, and um, I, I think uh, we all need to redouble our prayers to Our, our Lady in these times under whatever title or patronage uh, that may be part of our, our spiritual life. Sharing in different cultural aspects of faith, doesn't it make our own individual faith that much richer? Well, it does. I don't think any of us can embrace all of them. We have our history, our ethnicity, our experience, uh, but we respect all of them, you know. Yeah. Uh, we know the Polish people, for example, Our Lady of Czestochowa in Poland is a very uh, important shrine. You know, Our Lady of Fatima, Our Lady of Lourdes, and almost all Catholic cultures have some particular devotion to the Blessed Virgin that are very important. You know, in my former diocese when I was Bishop of Toledo, there's the National Shrine of Our Lady of Consolation in Cary, Ohio. And uh, that is very much associated with the people of Luxembourg, mm-hmm. uh, that statue. And that's those particular immigrants from there uh, were in that part of Ohio, and it's a very interesting a story of how this all developed in Ohio, but uh, it's just another example, you know, of the kind of uh, of thing that that uh, that's been very much part of the devotional life of the church. Wednesday, December fourteenth, marks the tenth anniversary of the horrific shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School here in Connecticut. While the killings have spurred much debate over gun control, it has also brought awareness to the importance of funding for behavioral and mental health problems. Any thoughts that you might have on the occasion of this 10th anniversary of that horrible day? Well, yes. I mean, uh, it's a tragedy that in its own right uh, merits our deepest uh, condolences and our prayers. But sadly, it's a tragedy that in other ways is repeated a lot in the massacre of uh, innocent people through people who are either crazed or spiritually and morally uh, just adrift uh, in a kind of perverse way. So, you know, sadly, it's not just an isolated incident, but it's related to so many kinds of incidents anymore. You know, Pope John Paul, St. John Paul told us that we are very much in danger of becoming a culture of death. And uh, 
I hate to say it, but in many respects, that's that's true. And so we have to be always working for a culture of life in all of its aspects. And there's so much violence, even so much more violence that we've experienced, it seems, during these past two years of the, the COVID pandemic. Yes. So that doesn't help either, does it? No. Thursday, December 15th, is the anniversary of the 1939 film Gone with the Wind, based on Margaret Mitchell's best-selling and Pulitzer Prize-winning novel. The film starred Vivian Leigh and Clark Gable, along with Haiti McDaniel, who won a Best Supporting Actress Oscar, the first time an African-American actor had won or been nominated. Well, in recent years, critics have deemed the film canceled, saying it depicts ethnic and racial prejudices. Others say that it is important that classic Hollywood films are available to us in their original form for viewing and discussion. What are your thoughts on cancel culture within our society today, Archbishop? Well, I think that's uh, very problematic, you know. I mean, obviously, there are certain things that are that are downright hateful that uh, are motivated by hate and prejudice that, I, that, that, that there's really no room for. But on the other hand... Uh, the hist- historical realities that are part of a uh, nation's uh, and a culture's history, you don't heal them by de- by hiding them. And, you you know, I would respectfully say I don't agree that it's disrespectful. Uh, it speaks to us of a time that these were realities. And, uh, of course, you have to remember that you and I are of an age that we know what we're talking about when we say the great movie Gone with the Wind. Mm-hmm. But... I find there are a lot of young priests that have never seen it. I mean, we have to remember, time marches on, that some of these uh, classic things for uh, uh, an earlier generation are not necessarily uh, current today. Well, rather than ignore history or pretend that it didn't happen, don't you think that we have an obligation to learn from history so that we don't repeat the mistakes of the past? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's just uh, the, the way uh, it, it is. Um, I mean, you... you you don't uh, you don't gain anything by uh, pretending uh, or trying to obliterate things. You have to deal with them. Let's lo- take a look now at the road to happiness in life, and this is where we examine the wisdom of Pope Francis that is drawn from some of the Pope's writing. I'll read a short portion of the Holy Father's address, and then we'll ask you, Archbishop, to comment with your own thoughts on what Pope Francis has said. This is taken from the Pope's general audience, delivered on February 19th of 2014, and is called, Be Brave, Go to Confession. The Pope says, It is healthy to feel a little shame. In my country, when a person feels no shame, we say that he is sin vergüenza, shameless. But shame can do us good. It makes us more humble. In confession, a priest receives our shame with love and tenderness, and he forgives us on God's behalf. Even from a human point of view, it is good to talk with a brother and vent to tell the priest what weighs so heavily on your heart. You feel as though you are unburdening yourself before God with the church to your brother. Do not be afraid of confession. When you are in line to go to confession, you feel all these things, even shame. But then when you finish confession, you feel free, grand, beautiful, forgiven, candid, happy. This is the beauty of confession. I would like to ask you, don't say anything. Answer in your heart. When was the last time you went to confession? Everyone think about it. Was it two days ago, two weeks, two years, 20 years, 40 years? Everyone count. Everyone ask yourselves, 
When was the last time I went to confession? And if a lot of time has passed, don't waste another day. Go. The priest will be benevolent. Jesus is there, and Jesus is more benevolent than priests. Jesus receives you. He received you with so much love. Be brave and go to confession. Your thoughts, Archbishop? Well, it's a timely reminder during a season of preparation for Christmas, uh, as it is during Lent for Easter, that that's a very good time to uh, think about going to the sacrament of penance, going to confession. And um, I uh, I mean, I think everything the Pope said is, is very uh, much the case, uh, and we need, to, we need to heed what he's telling us. It's for our own good. We talk about the medicine of immortality, you know, of immortality, the, the medicine that Christ is the healer of souls. Yeah. And I think that's so important that he's the healer of souls and that healing is imparted in many ways, but in a very special way in the sacrament of penance. I like the way the Pope talks about how you feel after you go to the sacrament and, and receive the sacrament of confession. It's kind of a very folksy way, but it, it's, it's true. It's an unburdening process. Huh? Yeah, a new beginning, a fresh start. Let's uh, look at our gospel reading um, for this third Sunday of Advent, the 11th day of December. Today's reading is from Matthew's Gospel, the 11th chapter, and after the gospel is dramatically presented, we'll talk with you, Archbishop, asking for your thoughts. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples, Are you he who is to come, or shall we look for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is he who takes no offense at me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to behold? A reed shaken by the wind? Why then did you go out? To see a man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, those who wear soft raiment are in kings' houses. Why then did you go out? To see a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before thy face who shall prepare thy way before thee. Truly I say to you, among those born of women there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Archbishop, what are your thoughts on this gospel? Well, we put it in the context of Advent, the season of Advent. You know, here we are preparing for the birth of Christ, but we're hearing gospels now about the beginning of Christ's ministry. And that is to say that, yes, Christ came into the world at his birth, but he also came uh, for a purpose, for a ministry, for a work, for uh, a mission. And so we tie those two together, uh, that John the Baptist now, uh, we hear him speaking about the Christ who's already 30 years old uh, and who's beginning his public ministry, uh, calling people to repentance. And so John the Baptist is the herald of the, of the one to come the one who is coming. And again, always that idea that Advent is about coming. The three comings of Christ, you know, his birth at Bethlehem, his coming to us in the sacraments, and his coming in the end to judge the living and the dead. And just as John the Baptist spoke of that middle coming, his ministry in this world, 
Now we speak about the same Christ who continues to come through the ministry of his church, through the sacraments, through the, through the word, through the, the, the gospel. Uh, and uh, that, that is all part of this Advent season. It's interesting. John wanted to know if Jesus was the one who is to come, and Jesus replied, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind regain their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news proclaimed to them. Today, can these very same signs signify that God is among us? Well, certainly, because it's not just the physical uh, signs, uh, miracles and such. We're uh, calling people to uh, recognize who Christ was and what he was offering, what he was telling them. And of course, now, those uh, things have passed into uh, the life of the church as the sacraments and the word that is proclaimed. So they're always under the sign of faith, just as those miraculous cures at, in Christ's ministry still required faith. You know, we're told that in some places he could perform no sign in a particular place because, so, because of their lack of faith. So you see, faith was important back then, and faith is, is equally important now. Jesus says there, there has been none greater than John the Baptist, yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What does he mean by that? Well, John is the last and greatest of the Old Testament prophets. He is this transition that points the way to the fulfillment of the law and the prophets in the person of Jesus Christ. So, uh, you know, as great as he was, uh, there is something much, much greater that is is uh, about to happen and that has happened for us. And that's where uh, God himself has fulfilled his promises and become, become one of us in all things but sin. Let's take a look now at some of the questions that have been submitted by our listeners. For instance, Melissa from Sharon says, when setting up the manger scene, do I put Jesus in it or is he removed until Christmas Day to reflect the season of Advent? Some say to remove him, while others say to leave him in the manger. <laughs> Melissa, I have no answer to give you. I think that because there's no right answer. Yes, it's true, I, especially like in church, they set it up early, and then a lot of times they have the tradition of bringing the Christ child at Christmas and putting him in the manger. But in normal displays of things, uh, you know, it, it, it's fine to do it either way. I think, though, if you do it by not having the figure in there right away, then you have to make a little uh, ceremony, if, if not for anybody else, for yourself of prayer and, uh, you know, at Christmas to, to uh, commemorate the birth of Christ. And that's, that's a good idea. It could be something that's done with the, the children in the family. Uh, maybe well, Christmas oldsters Eve. too, you yeah. know, if you yeah. just take a moment to offer a prayer and, and use that as an occasion to commemorate the birth of Christ, that's all to the good. Beautiful. Will from Bristol says, Why does Our Lady of Fatima say some souls will not make it to heaven because they don't receive enough prayers? Is there a minimum number of prayers required to enter into heaven? Well, well, it's not that. No, we can't ever make a science of, of these things as if, can, or maybe I should use the word calculation. These things are spiritual things that can't be calculated. But I take the sense of what Our Lady is saying is that uh, there is a spiritual power to prayer uh, that can help a person overcome evil or other people overcome evil. And if there's nobody to pray for somebody who's chosen an evil path, it's that much harder for that person to really repent and to believe. And so it's very important that we pray uh, for, uh, for everyone. 
uh, and that we pray also for the souls uh, in purgatory, you know, who are still awaiting purif- uh, their purification, uh, to pray for them in the communion of saints. Paul from Rocky Hill says, God doesn't tempt us, but is it right to say that God tests our faith? What is the difference between being tested and being tempted? Well, I suppose the two are very related, um, being tested and being tempted. And, you know, some things God wills, other things it's the permissive will of God. You know, we have to meditate on the temptations that Christ faced in the desert, you know. I think that's very important because Christ became one of us in all things but sin. He became, you know, uh, his true God and true man. And so he he underwent this kind of temptation, but he came showed us how to, that we can, with his grace, with grace we can overcome the temptation. So I think, you know, you could say that being tested and being tempted really are, are uh, can be used uh, each one for the other. Mary from East Windsor says, Our society seems intent on destroying the family. Marriage is threatened by divorce and undermined by civil unions and same-sex marriages, which call into question the purpose of marriage at all. Many children are raised without discipline and are victims of abuse or neglect. What can we learn from the holiest of all families, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, to make the family structure stronger and to show us a better way? Well, Mary, you're absolutely right, and I would say that the situation is even worse than you describe, because now there are fundamental, uh, there's a fundamental questioning of even what uh, the reality of being a male or female, of being a man or woman, a husband or father, and a wife and mother. There's even uh, questioning, even irrationally, certain things, uh, as if we could simply create ourselves, uh, which is, of course, the ultimate sin, the ultimate blasphemy, to say that we are the creators of ourselves. And uh, I feel for the, the children who are being subjected to all kinds of perverse things and strange things uh, in a way that that uh, I, I hope the American people are vigilant enough to rein in. Uh, but what we can learn from Jesus, Mary, and Joseph is simply the the reality of creation and redemption, that we, we do not create ourselves, that God created us. We have a God-given a sexuality, a God-given human nature, and we were made for God. We were made uh, for eternity. Uh, and that when we fulfill our responsibilities, now they changed. Uh, those responsibilities have a cultural context, obviously. Being a husband or a wife is not the same in Connecticut in 2022 as it was uh, in uh, Nazareth uh, at the time of the Holy Family. But the fundamentals are the same. Yes, the fundamentals are the same. And, uh, you know, how can we learn and how can we make them stronger? Well, we can only do that by our faith and by uh, living with the truths of our faith when it comes to human sexuality and marriage. Ted from Roxbury says, I hear all the time in opinion articles and Catholic Facebook groups that a majority of American Catholics have been sacramentalized but never catechized or evangelized. What does this mean? It seems to me that it belittles the sacraments. No, Ted, I don't think it's meant to do that. I think what it's saying is something that we bishops in the United States have been talking about a lot lately, and that is what I think what that means is that many American Catholics have received the sacraments. Yeah, they've been baptized when they were little infants, 
They made their first communion in the, when they were in grade school. They uh, made confirmation uh, when they were, you know, in early high school. But does that mean that they were ever really catechized or even prior to that evangelized? Evangelized means that the fundamental uh, gospel truth about Christ was every pro- ever proclaimed to them in such a way that they, to to use an image from our Protestant uh, uh, friends, that they were converted to Christ, that they, they gave their life over to Christ. And uh, it's, you know, uh, I recently uh, went to one of the, um, what can I call it, a little uh, a prayer uh, session of the neocatechumenal way that's in our archdiocese now. And the evening was devoted precisely to the proclamation of God's word and reflecting on it from the point of view of the fundamental reality of God's gift to us and the need to be converted. Not in general, but my life and your life. How are we going to turn to Christ and, and live our life? So I it it doesn't belittle the sacraments because the re, you know, we very sadly I, I you know I have cathedrals full of, of kids, young people I should say, being confirmed in the Archdiocese. When they leave on that Saturday, uh I wonder how many of them are going to Mass on Sunday? How many of their parents are going to Mass on Sunday? And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying they don't. But, you know, you have to, we have to open our eyes that there are an awful lot of people who, even when they receive the sacraments, they're not going to Mass. They're not going to confession. They're not letting their life be informed. Uh, they're, they're, you know, in the, the poisonous atmosphere today about uh, sexual morality— uh, they're often subscribing to many of the things that are of this world and not to the truths of faith. So I don't for a moment discount the importance of their receiving the sacraments. And those sacraments do give us the grace of God to live a Catholic Christian life, one that takes to heart the call of the gospel to repentance and faith. But we can't be naive either that a lot of people are not really crossing the threshold to live a fully Catholic life. So what do we do? We have to pray for them. We have to give them a good example. We have to invite them. And we have to also try to proclaim to them the most fundamental truths. Uh, You know, getting back to our earlier items here, you know, John the Baptist is out there crying, repent and believe, prepare the way of the Lord. Does this question, Archbishop, reflect then the need for adult education, adult religious education, because obviously if, if you've been baptized as an infant, uh, made your confirmation as a, a, a young teenager, but that's the extent of your knowledge of the faith as an adult, perhaps you're missing out some, uh, on some important material which could invigorate your faith life, so therefore the need for adult religious education. Well, I would say yes and no. Uh, yes, in the sense that if you uh, are not only uh, claiming a Catholic identity, but you're actually practicing your faith, then obviously greater education in the faith is important. And that's what we used to presume. But we don't presume that anymore. It's not education. It's fundamental conversion that we need uh, to have uh, actually uh, uh, this uh, evangelization that if if you you uh, are uh, you're not practicing your faith you you, you need to actually um, hear the fundamental message of the gospel and and subscribe to it and then the rest builds on that foundation 
Mary from Riverton has a question. She says, I really enjoy the practice of the lighting of the Advent candles at Mass. Something about this tradition in getting ready for Jesus' birth makes me more aware of my faith. What do the colors of the candles signify? Well, the purple is an Advent uh, color because purple, as in Lent, so in Advent, it's a more somber season. It's a season of not the joyful celebration, but the preparation and not just the preparation of the church or, you know, holiday plans, but the preparation of one's soul through uh, penance and confession, in other words, to prepare yourself. The rose-colored candle on the wreath is simply to a simple way of lightening up a little bit halfway through Advent or Lent, uh, because that happens in Lent too on the third Sunday, uh, to just kind of say, you know, we're halfway there, so keep, let's keep it up. But that's the symbolism of these liturgical colors. Archbishop, we've come to the end of our time together. Can you close the program with a prayer and a blessing, please? Lord Jesus, this is the season of expectant hope. We know in faith that you have come. You are the Redeemer of the world. But we also know that in this time before your final coming, we are called every day to repent and believe we're called to really open our eyes to the truths of our faith uh, and the truths that of what is demanded of us in charity and in hope. And we pray that you will give us uh, the grace always to make use of the graces of this season of preparation so that when Christmas comes or when the end of our life comes, we will have prepared well uh, to uh, meet you uh, spiritually or face-to-face. And we make our prayer in your name, who are Lord forever and ever. Amen. Amen. And may Almighty God bless you all in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Archbishop, thank you for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner. We look forward to joining you next week when together we'll celebrate the fourth Sunday of Advent. Thank you.